Chapter Eight, Part Two of School of the Woods by William J. Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maggie Travers. Chapter Eight, Part Two, Kosk the Keen-Eyed. By watching the birds through my glass as they came to the young, I could generally tell what kind of game was afoot for their following. Once a long snake hung from the mother bird's bill. Once it was a bird of some kind. Twice she brought small animals, whose species I could not make out in the brief moment of alighting on the nest's edge. All these besides the regular fare of fish and frogs, of which I took no account. And then, one day while I lay in my hiding, I saw the mother heron slide swiftly down from the nest, make a sharp wheel over the lake, and plunge into the fringe of berry bushes on the shore after some animal that her keen eyes had caught moving. There was a swift rustling in the bushes, a blow of her wing to head off a runaway, two or three lightning thrusts of her javelin beak. Then she rose heavily, taking a leveret with her, and I saw her pulling it to pieces awkwardly on the nest to feed her hungry little ones. It was partly to see these little herons, the thought of which had fascinated me ever since I had seen Kosk taking home what I thought, at first glance, was a rag doll for them to play with, and partly to find out more of Koska's hunting habits by seeing what he brought home, that led me at last to undertake the difficult task of climbing the huge tree to the nest. One day, when the mother had brought home some unknown small animal, a mink, I thought, I came suddenly out of my hiding and crossed over to the nest. It had always fascinated me. Under it, at twilight, I heard the mother heron croaking softly to her little ones, a husky lullaby, but sweet enough to them. And then, as I paddled away, I would see the nest dark against the sunset, with Mother Kosk standing over it, a tall, graceful silhouette against the glory of twilight, keeping sentinel watch over her little ones. Now I would solve the mystery of the high nest by looking into it. The mother, alarmed by my sudden appearance, she had no idea that she had been watched, shot silently away, hoping I would not notice her home through the dense screen of branches. I climbed up with difficulty, but not till I was within ten feet could I make out the mass of sticks above me. The surroundings were getting filthy and evil-smelling by this time, for Kosk teaches the young herons to keep their nest perfectly clean by throwing all refuse over the sides of the great home. A dozen times I had watched the mother birds of the colony push their little ones to the edge of the nest to teach them this rule of cleanliness, so different from most other birds. As I hesitated about pushing through the filth-laden branches, something bright on the edge of the nest caught my attention. It was a young heron's eye, looking down at me over a long bill, watching my approach with a keenness that was but thinly disguised by the half-drawn eyelids. I had to go round the tree at this point for a standing on a larger branch, and when I looked up, there was another eye watching down over another long bill. So, however I turned, they watched me closely getting nearer and nearer, till I reached up my hand to touch the nest. Then there was a harsh croak. Three long necks reached down suddenly over the edge of the nest on the side where I was. Three long bills opened wide just over my head, 
and three young herons grew suddenly seasick, as if they had swallowed Ipecac. I never saw the inside of that home. At the moment I was in too much of a hurry to get down and wash in the lake, and after that, so large were the young birds, so keen and powerful the beaks, that no man or beast might expect to look over the edge of the nest with hands or paws engaged in holding on, and keep his eyes for a single instant. It is more dangerous to climb for young herons than for young eagles. A heron always strikes for the eye, and his blow means blindness, or death, unless you watch like a cat and ward it off. When I saw the young again, they were taking their first lessons. A dismal croaking in the treetops attracted me, and I came over cautiously to see what my herons were doing. The young were standing up on the big nest, stretching their necks and wings, and croaking hungrily, while the mother stood on a treetop some distance away, showing them food and telling them plainly, in heron language, to come and get it. They tried it after much coaxing and croaking, but their long, awkward toes missed their hold upon the slender branch on which she was balancing delicately, just as she expected it to happen. As they fell, flapping lustily, she shot down ahead of them and led them in a long, curving slant to an open spot on the shore. There she fed them with the morsels she held in her beak, brought more food from a tuft of grass where she had hidden it, near at hand, praised them with gurgling croaks till they felt some confidence on their awkward legs. Then the whole family started up the shore on their first frogging expedition. It was intensely interesting for a man who, as a small boy, had often gone a-frogging himself, to catch big ones for a woodsy corn-roast, or little ones for pickerel-bait, to sit now on a bog and watch the little herons try their luck. Mother Cosk went ahead cautiously, searching the lily pads. The young trailed behind her awkwardly, lifting their feet like a Shanghai rooster and setting them down with a splash to scare every frog within hearing, exactly where the mother's foot had rested a moment before. So they went on, the mother's head swinging like a weather vane to look far ahead, the little ones stretching their necks so as to peek by her on either side, full of wonder at the new world, full of hunger for the things that grew there, till a startled young frog said, Kutum! from behind a lily-bud, where they did not see him, and dove headlong into the mud, leaving a long, crinkly brown trail to tell exactly how far he had gone. A frog is like an ostrich. When he sees nothing, because his head is hidden, he thinks nothing can see him. At the sudden alarm, Mother Cosk would stretch her neck, watching the frog's flight, then turn her head so that her long bill pointed directly at the bump on the smooth, muddy bottom, which marked the hiding place of Chigwoltz, and croaked softly once. At the sound, one of the young herons would hurry forward eagerly, followed his mother's bill, which remained motionless, pointing all the while, twist his head till he saw the frog's back in the mud, and then lunge at it like lightning. Generally he got his frog, and through your glass you would see the unfortunate creature wriggling and kicking his way into Koska's yellow beak. If the lunge missed, the mother's keen eye followed the frog's frantic rush through the mud with a longer trail this time behind him, till he hid again, 
whereupon she croaked the same youngster up for another try, and then the whole family moved jerkily along, like a row of boys on stilts, to the next clump of lily-pads. As the young grew older and stronger on their legs, I noticed the rudiments, at least, of a curious habit of dancing, which seems to belong to most of our long-legged wading birds. Sometimes, sitting quietly in my canoe, I would see the young bird sail down in a long slant to the shore. Immediately on alighting, before they gave any thought to frogs or fish or carnal appetite, they would hop up and down, balancing, swaying, spreading their wings, and hopping again round about each other as if bewitched. A few moments of this crazy performance, and then they would stalk sedately along the shore, as if ashamed of their ungainly levity. But at any moment the ecstasy might seize them, and they would hop again, as if they simply could not help it. This occurred generally towards evening, when the birds had fed full and were ready for play, or for stretching their broad wings in preparation for the long autumn flight. Watching them one evening, I remembered suddenly a curious scene that I had stumbled upon when a boy. I had seen a great blue heron sail croaking, croaking into an arm of the big pond where I was catching bull-pouts, and crept down through the dense woods to find out what he was croaking about. Instead of one, I found eight or ten of the great birds on an open shore, hopping ecstatically through some kind of crazy dance. A twig snapped as I crept nearer, and they scattered in instant flight. It was September, and the instinct to flock and to migrate was at work among them. When they came together for the first time, some dim old remembrance of generations long gone by, the shreds of an ancient instinct, whose meaning we can only guess at, had set them to dancing wildly, though I doubted at the time whether they understood much of what they were doing. Perhaps I was wrong in this. Watching the young birds at their ungainly hopping, the impulse to dance seemed uncontrollable, yet they were immensely dignified about it at times, and again they appeared to get some fun out of it, as much perhaps as we do out of some of our peculiar dances, of which a visiting Chinaman once asked innocently, Why don't you let your servants do it for you? I have seen little green herons do the same thing in the woods, at mating time, and once, in the zoological gardens at Antwerp, I saw a magnificent hopping performance by some giant cranes from Africa. Our own sandhill and whooping cranes are notorious dancers, and undoubtedly it is more or less instinctive with all the tribes of the Herodones, from the least to the greatest. But what the instinct means, unless it is like our own dancing, it is a pure bit of pleasure-making as crows play games and loons swim races. Nobody can tell. Before the young were fully grown, and while yet they were following the mother to learn the ways of frogging and fishing, a startling thing occurred which made me ever afterwards look up to Kosk with honest admiration. I was still fishing in the middle of the big lake one late afternoon when Kosk and her little ones sailed over the trees from the beaver pond and lit on a grassy shore. A shallow little brook stole into the lake there, and Mother Kosk left her young to frog for themselves while she went fishing up the brook under the alders. 
I was watching the young herons through my glass when I saw a sudden rush in the tall grass near them. All three humped themselves, heron fashion, on the instant. Two got away safely. The other had barely spread his wings when a black animal leapt out of the grass for his neck and pulled him down flapping and croaking desperately. I pulled up my killick on the instant and paddled over to see what was going on and what the creature was that had leapt out of the grass. Before my paddle had swung a dozen strokes, I saw the alders by the brook open swiftly, and Mother Cosk sailed out and drove like an arrow straight at the struggling wingtips, which still flapped spasmodically above the grass. Almost before her feet had dropped to a solid landing, she struck two fierce, blinding downward blows of her great wings. Her neck curved back and shot straight out, driving the keen six-inch bill before it, quicker than ever a Roman arm drove its javelin. Above the lap-lap of my canoe I heard a savage cry of pain. The same black animal leapt up out of the tangled grass, snapping for the neck, and a desperate battle began, with a short gasping croaks and snarls that made caution unnecessary as I sped over to see who the robber was and how Kosk was faring in the good fight. The canoe shot up behind a point where, looking over the low bank, I had the arena directly under my eye. The animal was a fisher, black cat the trappers call him, the most savage and powerful fighter of his size in the whole world, I think. In the instant that I first saw him, quicker than thought, he had hurled himself twice like a catapult at the towering bird's breast. Each time he was met by a lightning blow in the face from Koska's stiffened wing. His teeth ground the big quills into pulp, his claws tore them into shreds. But he got no grip in the feathery mass, and he slipped, clawing and snarling, into the grass, only to spring again like a flash. Again the stiff wing blow, but this time his jump was higher. One claw gripped the shoulder tore its way through flying feathers to the bone while his weight dragged the big bird down. Then Kosk shortened her neck in a great curve. Like a snake it glided over the edge of her own wing for two short, sharp downthrust of the deadly javelin, so quick that my eye caught only the double yellow flash of it. With a sharp screech the black cat leapt away and whirled toward me blindly. One eye was gone, an angry red welt showed just over the other, telling how narrowly the second thrust had missed its mark. Koska's frame seemed to swell like a hero whose fight is won. A shiver ran over me as I remembered how nearly I had once come myself to the black cat's condition, and from the same keen weapon. I was a small boy, following a big, good-natured hunter that I had met in the woods, from pure love of the wilds and for the glory of carrying the game-bag. He shot a great blue heron, which fell with a broken wing into soft mud and water grass. Carelessly he sent me to fetch it, not caring to wet his own feet. As I ran up, the heron lay resting quietly, his neck drawn back, his long keen bill pointing always straight at my face. I had never seen so big a bird before, and bent over him, wondering at his long bill, admiring his intensely bright eye. I did not know then, what I have since learned well, 
that you can always tell when the rush or spring or blow of any beast or bird, or of any man for that matter, will surely come by watching the eye closely. There is a fire that blazes in the eye before the blow comes, before ever a muscle has stirred to do the brain's quick bidding. As I bent over, fascinated by the keen, bright look of the wounded bird, and reached down my hand, there was a flash deep in the eye, like the glint of sunshine from a mirror, and I dodged instinctively. Well for me that I did so. Something shot by my face like lightning, opening up a long red gash across my left temple from eyebrow to ear. As I jumped, I heard a careless laugh. Look out, Sonny, he may bite you. Gosh, what a close call. And with a white, scared face, as he saw the scar, he dragged me away as if there had been a bear in the water grass. The black cat had not yet received punishment enough. He is one of the largest of the weasel family and has a double measure of the weasel's savageness and tenacity. He darted about the heron in a quick, nervous, jumping circle, looking for an opening behind, while Kosk lifted her great torn wings as a shield and turned slowly on the defensive so as always to face the danger. A dozen times the fisher jumped, filling the air with feathers. A dozen times the stiffened wings struck down to intercept his spring, and every blow was followed by a swift javelin thrust. Then, as the fisher crouched snarling in the grass, I saw Mother Kosk take a sudden step forward, her first offensive move just as I had seen her twenty times at the finish of a frog-stalk, and her bill shot down with the whole power of her long neck behind it. There was a harsh screech of pain, then the fisher wobbled away with blind, uncertain jumps towards the shelter of the woods. By this time Kosk had the fight well in hand. A fierce, hot anger seemed to flare within her as her enemy staggered away, burning out all the previous cool calculating defense. She started after the fisher, first on the run, then with heavy wing-beats, till she headed him, and with savage blows of wing and beak drove him back, seeing nothing, guided only by fear and instinct, towards the water. For five minutes more she chevied him hither and yon through the trampled grass, driving him from water to bush and back again, jabbing him at every turn, till a rustle of leaves invited him, and he dashed blindly into thick underbrush where her broad wings could not follow. Then with marvelous watchfulness she saw me standing near in my canoe, and without a thought, apparently for the young heron lying so still in the grass close beside her, she spread her torn wings and flapped away heavily in the path of her more fortunate younglings. I followed the fisher's trail into the woods and found him curled up in a hollow stump. He made slight resistance as I pulled him out. All his ferocity was lulled to sleep in the vague, dreamy numbness which nature always sends to her stricken creatures. He suffered nothing, though he was fearfully wounded. He just wanted to be left alone. Both eyes were gone. There was nothing for me to do except to finish mercifully what little Kosk had left undone. When September came, and family cares were over, the colony beyond the beaver pond scattered widely, returning each one to the shy, 
wild, solitary life that Kosk likes best. Almost anywhere, in the loneliest places, I might come upon a solitary heron stalking frogs, or chumming little fish, or treading the soft mud expectantly, like a clam digger, to find where the mussels were hidden by means of his long toes, or just standing still to enjoy the sleepy sunshine till the late afternoon came, when he likes best to go abroad. They slept no more on the big nest, standing like sentinels against the twilight glow and the setting moon, but each one picked out a good spot on the shore and slept as best he could on one leg, waiting for the early fishing. It was astonishing how careful even the young birds picked out a safe position. By day they would stand like statues in the shade of a bank or among the tall grasses, where they were almost invisible by reason of their soft colors, and wait for hours for fish and frogs to come to them. By night each one picked out a spot on the clean, open shore, off a point generally where he could see up and down, where there was no grass to hide an enemy, and where the bushes were far enough away so that he could hear the slight rustle of leaves before the creature that made it was within springing distance. And there he would sleep safe through the long night, unless disturbed by my canoe or by some other prowler. Herons see almost as well by night as by day, so I could never get near enough to surprise them, however silently I paddled. I would hear only a startled rush of wings, and then a questioning call as they sailed over me before winging away to quieter beaches. If I were jacking, with a light blazing brightly before me in my canoe, to see what night folk I might surprise on the shore, Kosk was the only one for whom my jack had no fascination. Deer and moose, foxes and wild ducks, frogs and fish, all seemed equally charmed by the great wonder of a light shining silently out of the vast darkness. I saw them all at different times, and glided almost up to them before timidity drove them away from the strange, bright marvel. But Kosk was not to be watched in that way, nor to be caught by any such trick. I would see a vague form on the far edge of the light's pathway, catch the bright flash of either eye as he swung his weather-vane head, then the vague form would slide into the upper darkness. A moment's waiting, then above me and behind, where the light did not dazzle his eyes, I would hear his night cry, with more of anger than of questioning in it, and as I turned the jack upward I would catch a single glimpse of his broad wings sailing over the lake. Nor would he ever come back, like the fox on the bank, for a second look, to be quite sure what I was. When the bright moonlight nights came, there was uneasiness in Koska's wild breast. The solitary life that he loved best claimed him by day, but at night the old gregarious instinct drew him again to his fellows. Once, when drifting over the beaver pond through the delicate witchery of the moonlight, I heard five or six of the great birds croaking excitedly at the heronry, which they had deserted weeks before. The lake, and especially the lonely little pond at the end of the trail, was lovelier than ever before. But something in the south was calling him away. I think that Kosk was almost moonstruck, as so many wild creatures are. For, instead of sleeping quietly on the shore, he spent his time circling aimlessly over the lake and woods, crying his name aloud, or calling wildly to his fellows. 
At midnight of the day before I broke camp, I was out on the lake for a last paddle in the moonlight. The night was perfect, clear, cool, intensely still. Not a ripple broke the great burnished surface of the lake. A silver pathway stretched away and away over the bow of my gliding canoe, leading me on to where the great forest stood, silent, awake expectant and flooded through all its dim mysterious arches with marvelous light the wilderness never sleeps if it grows silent it is to listen tonight the woods were tense as a waiting fox watching to see what new thing would come out of the lake or what strange mystery would be born under their own soft shadows kosk was abroad too bewitched by the moonlight I heard him calling and paddled down. He knew me long before he was anything more to me than a voice of the night, and swept up to meet me. For the first time after darkness fell I saw him. Just a vague gray shadow with edges touched softly with silver light, which whirled once over my canoe and looked down into it. Then he vanished, and from far over on the edge of the waiting woods, where the mystery was deepest, came a cry, a challenge a riddle, the night's wild question which no man has ever yet answered. Koshk? Koshk? End of chapter 8, part 2. Recording by Maggie Travers in Casilla, Mississippi.